Divey's Late Night. Hello and welcome to Diva Bedick's Diaries Late Night Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and I want to thank all of you for joining us and helping celebrate National Diabetes Awareness Month with musical inspiration from Giacomo Puccini. That's right. Tonight we're at the Met Opera, enjoying some opera, and we're going to be exploring the history of diabetes, talking about the highs and lows of daily self-care management and celebrating the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin on this episode. Now, Italian composer Giacomo Puccini was born December 22, 1858. He was the sixth of nine children born in Italy. And although he freely admitted that writing an opera is difficult work, he still managed to somehow start the operatic trend toward realism with his popular works, including La Boheme, Madame Butterfly, and Tosca. What you might not know about one of the most popular Italian opera composers is that he was living with diabetes. Following a car crash in 1903, Puccini was diagnosed with diabetes, and in 1923, he began insulin therapy. Joining me tonight to talk more about these topics are certified diabetes care and education specialist Toby Smithson and Patricia Addy Gentle. And throughout the podcast, we will be featuring music from Puccini, great opera arias courtesy of Sony Music. Before we play our next aria, I want to encourage you to take a minute and tune into Divabetic's annual mystery podcast. This year's podcast is entitled A Christmas Peril, and it's available on demand at iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Plus, you still have a chance to sign up for tomorrow night's free Divabetic Zoom program entitled Once in a Blue Moon, uh, go to Eventbrite, or you might want to sign up for a holiday baking party with Stacey Harris, known as the Diabetic Pastry Chef. That's happening in December. Check out all those details when you visit Eventbrite and search for Divabetic. Straight ahead, our musical inspiration, Puccini, was orphaned at the age of five by the death of his father. He helped to support his nine 
his big family, I'm thinking nine children, that's a pretty big family, by playing organ at a small local church. A performance of Giuseppe Verdi's Aida in Pisa in 1876 convinced him that his true vocation was opera. Wow, that's an amazing discovery, and we're so glad he did that. It's brought to life so much great music. Let's enjoy a selection from La Boheme, courtesy of Sony Music. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. You know, I, I have really admitted over the years that I don't listen to many podcasts, but I do love Aria Code by the Met Opera, and that kind of inspired tonight's podcast. I wanted to make sure we uh, played music from someone who was living with diabetes in their lifetime. And when I found out Giacomo Puccini was diagnosed back in 1903, I wanted to uh, showcase him and also play more opera music, kind of step out of our musical comfort zone and challenge you with some great opera and some wonderful arias. All right, so uh, Giacomo Puccini was diagnosed with diabetes, but he he admitted he struggled to manage his diabetes through most of his life. He probably needed the help of my first guest. She's the founder of DiabetesEveryday.com, an online technical and lifestyle support resource for people with diabetes by sharing her own personal experience of living with diabetes for 53 years. Please welcome to the show Toby Smithson. Hi, Toby. Hi. Thanks for having me tonight. Thanks for joining us and celebrating your diversity uh, because you were diagnosed initially at the age of eight in November, right? Correct. Yes. So um, I know that wasn't 100 years ago, but there's still a lot has changed (laughs) in the diabetes world since then. On a recent podcast, you mentioned that back when you were initially diagnosed, people didn't really talk about diabetes. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about what it was like to be diagnosed um, over 50 years ago and how people around you dealt with it? Yeah, it it was very different. Uh, extreme, I, I want to say extremely different. Uh, I remember exactly how I felt in every, you know, the, Basically, I was very lethargic. They thought that I had the flu. We kept going back and forth to the pediatrician, um, not an endocrinologist at that time. Um, and what we found out is that uh, he diagnosed me, the pediatrician diagnosed me through blood work with type 1 diabetes, and the difference was that they uh, immediately hospitalized me. And I think I was there for like a week to do all that diabetes education, learn how to uh, take insulin injections with um, a syringe. They had me practice with an orange. And um, I remember that very vividly. Uh, and it back then, uh, it wasn't like chronic conditions really weren't talked about 
outside of the family. You know, it was kept, in my family, it was kept a secret. Uh, And so lots of different things, like even checking blood sugar. Like, we had to do it through urine. I was like a chemist. I still have my urine testing uh, equipment, and it's these little glass test tubes and an eyedropper. I would pee in a cup and then do take the eyedropper to put the drops of urine either on tablets or in the beginning it was testing strips. Uh, And back then, it wasn't giving you, it was just a color scheme. So it wasn't giving you an actual blood sugar reading. I mean, we have advanced so far for the good of all uh, to to know uh, for better management. Yeah, and I, I find this so interesting. You just uh, about the difference about how much diabetes self care and how we look at it has changed in just these fifty years. And you just hit on several points that I wanted to bring up. One was that, like you said, when you were first diagnosed, you were hospitalized, and that was probably standard. Second of all, you were you mentioned how you didn't have a endocrinologist wasn't really seeing children back then. So I'm assuming you saw a general practitioner, but I'll give you a minute to explain that. And then third, just the fact that you were not using uh, what we would say a glucose meter or continuous glucose monitor or anything like that to check your, uh, to check your blood sugars. In fact, you were using urine tests, which you're going to give us a little perspective on how much, how accurate those were compared to how, after some of these glucose, um, continuous glucose monitors are. But the next thing I wanted to also bring up uh, in this, while you go back through those three changes, is also the type of insulin you were taking back then versus uh, what you're taking today. So when you, when you look at these things I mentioned, Toby, just go through and share a little bit more detail on how much, it's, how much you've seen change in, in these 50 years, 53 years. Mhm. Yeah. The um, I'm probably going to go backwards here with the the insulin. It definitely we have made so many advances with types of insulin. You know, having being able to have a great basal rate if you're taking injections. You know, there's uh, a basal insulin, or if you're on an insulin new technologies, it gives you a basal rate. So the newer insulins are helping us to mimic what our a healthy pancreas would be doing. Back then, there was, you know, I'm racking my brain. I can't remember if I was on one or two injections, but it was intermediate-acting insulin. And then when I went on multiple injections, it was short-acting insulin. And these names uh, are with duration, you know, of when it peaks uh, and, um, how long it lasts, uh, and it was not uh, really mimicking your pancreas as well as it is today with our rapid acting, you know, that the insulin gets absorbed within 15 minutes. Uh, like, that's the, the long length of time that it does. So uh, we we have advanced really far with insulin so that it's mimicking our pancreas more, you know, it's like we want to have more of an artificial pancreas. Like that's our goal, where we're going with all the technology and the research. Um, that's what the goal is, to, to, to have our body working did, as if our pancreas was. Did you, were you someone who embraced 
technology over the five decades, or were you hesitant because you found certain things were working? I'm curious to get your um, approach, how you, how you approach mm-hmm. all this mm-hmm. new, there's so many new things. Yeah, I, I say I'm a late bloomer for, for all of it. I, uh, I have been hesitant throughout uh, about all, as the, the new technologies came, because it was like, well, if, 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 if there's nothing broken, why should I need to fix it, meaning on my management? Uh, and I remember my endocrinologist at the time, uh, and it's only been maybe 10, 10, 12 years that I've been wearing an insulin pump where it's been out for many years, you know, more than two decades, okay, three, three decades. Um, so I was um, hesitant in how my endocrinologist um, convinced me was that we did a continuous glucose monitor that you take home for three days. It, it was blinded, so I didn't know what the readings were. And then when I came back, he showed me how my blood sugars were, were um, trending with the regimen that I was on. And so that's when I went on a, a insulin pump. But it hasn't been, it's been maybe two years that I've been on a continuous glucose monitor. So. Okay, so wait, I want, I, want to do a, I want to do a comparison with you. So now, because you kind of told us what you're doing, let's compare what you, how you were treating your, your uh, type 1 diabetes. I think we said that, but we want to make sure we're being clear with everyone. Your type 1 diabetes 50 years ago or 53 years ago versus how you treat it today, like one day. So back when you were in, uh, you were eight when you were first diagnosed, so let's just say when you were a teenager, how, how, how would you just walk us through the day and then walk us through what you're doing today or however you want to do mm-hmm. it? Yeah, it was checking my urine when I woke up in the morning. Would you wake, would you wake uh, up and check your urine? Okay. Yep. And I don't remember the difference in them. If I'm not even remembering that there was any change in the insulin dosage based on my urine. Uh, back then, in the beginning, it was just based on, you know, is it showing that it's elevated? And then you have to check your urine for ketones. And if so, then it's taking more insulin at that time and drinking water. Like, that was kind of the regimen. Uh, I ate according to the exchange system for diet. Uh, and there's, could there's a you lot give of yourself injections? Can you Could yes. you give yourself injections in school, or did you have to go to the nurse's office? And if you had to check your blood sugars during mm-hmm. the middle of the day at school, would you go to the back? I mean, you'd have to go to the back, into the restroom, I assume, right? Yeah, it wasn't done. Neither of those things were done. I only took injections when I was at home, and I didn't bring my urine testing equipment to school. And because you're a certified diabetes educator and education specialist, (laughs) we now know, like you said earlier, that the urine test wasn't up to the moment at all. In fact, it was might have been giving you a reading from... I don't know what the time lapse would have been, but there would have been a time lapse with the reading from what was actually going on mm-hmm. in your body. So now compare it to what you do today. So when you wake up today, how are you managing your diabetes? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I wear a continuous glucose monitor, so I'm constantly watching my blood sugars, um, it, it, like constant, constantly and watching the trends and making adjustments in my insulin pump when needed. But I wake up, I see what my reading is, I bolus according to how many bolus means uh, taking insulin, a dose of insulin based on how many carbohydrates I'm going to eat. And um, that's what I do for each of the meals. And I want to end this first segment with you by talking about something that you brought up in a recent podcast too. You said that you believe diabetes is physical, but effective diabetes management is emotional. I know that your mother's initial reaction from that interview wasn't very helpful. And I'm just wondering like how, what, where, where was your, where were the emotions and how did you deal with the emotions related to diabetes 50 years ago versus how you kind of see managing it today or even how you apply it to helping manage your patients today? Mm-hmm. You know, actually, in, I hadn't thought about this before, but it's very similar in, in some sense. Uh, I don't remember, like, in having any emotional breakdown or, or any, like, strong emotions. It was one of these that, if I am going to stay as healthy as possible, I need to take charge of myself. That's the mo- the brain, the mind frame that I had, mindset, is that nobody else is going to do this. Um, I'm the one that has to do it. So that's what I did. Um, thankfully, because reaching 50 years with no complications is a, is a big milestone, um, and today I continue to, I'm not relying on anybody else to, quote, take care of me or that they're responsible for it. It's my body that I want to keep healthy, and it's all the decisions that I need to make. And, um, you know, if I want to stay healthy, I need to do this. And later on the show, you're going to show us how you make a uh, habit and how you create mindful goals and break down those. If you've got that big goal of losing weight, you break it down into behaviors and do take baby steps. And I can't wait to discuss that with you. But coming up, Patricia Eddie Gentle is going to break down the history of insulin with us, celebrating the 100th year anniversary of the discovery of insulin. Right now, we're going to play some more music. We're back at the opera with Puccini. You know, um, we have a lot of history with women, and that really kind of sheds light on why some of his most popular operas are fascinated by the themes of tragic love. In fact, after the death of his mother, he fled his hometown to uh, with a married woman and settled in Milan. I also feel uh, it's kind of interesting, I think, when you think that Madame Butterfly is a story of the desire in the form of immature love and the passion that ends in birth, death, and remorse. Let's listen to a little bit of Madam Butterfly, courtesy of Sony Music.
Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. You're hearing the voice of the full lyric soprano of Dame Carrie Te Kanawa. I may not have gotten that right, but I do love that woman's voice. She's from New Zealand. She has an incredible story of how she was orphaned and she was adopted and her her mother uh, heard her, encouraged her to sing when they would take car rides. And that led into this marvelous career in opera where she's performed all over the world. And uh, I just, I'm mesmerized by her voice every time I listen to this CD, thanks to um, Sony Music. And I'm also mesmerized when I talk to our next guest, Patricia Addy Gentle, who's going to help me kind of do a deep dive into the discovery of insulin. I think we take it for granted. We heard uh, Toby talking earlier about the different kinds that have changed over the years and how people look at it. And um, there's so much more available and how even some people, though, are unfortunately uh, a little scared about taking insulin. And so Patricia's going to walk us all the way back to 1921 and tell us a little bit about how all the discovery of insulin um, has changed millions of lives and how it all happened. Welcome, Patricia. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. You know, I've been I've been wa- waiting to do this um, discussion about diabetes, so uh, I, I'm just so thrilled to have you talking about this today. So tell us, uh, before the discovery of insulin in 1921, how did people manage their diabetes? Well, before um, the discovery of insulin, people with diabetes didn't live very long because there wasn't um, too many doctors who could treat them. And the treatment was not as advanced as what we see today. So, therefore, um, they really did not have much hope. The most effective treatment was to put the patients with diabetes on very, very, very strict diets, and that was with minimal carbohydrates. So they didn't have a lot of intake, and this in itself sometimes would lead to starvation or it would lead to uh, deficiencies, and they just didn't live very long. I know. So when you hear that uh, Giacomo Puccini was diagnosed like in 1903 and actually made, you know, started to receive insulin therapy 20 years later and admittedly said he struggled with diabetes, I think anyone would kind of struggle in the regime you just mentioned, right? I mean, it's not – I mean, it's kind of incredible that he lived that long after being diagnosed with it. Yes, it, it really is. It really is. When I looked at that information, I was thinking, well, he did a remarkable job uh, to survive as long as he did because most people did not live that long, and uh, they were surviving with as little as 450 calories per day. Um, so that just goes to show you that um, starvation was inevitable for most of these people, and they just, if if you look at, old videos and and tape strips from uh, the treatment. I know when I was in nursing school, we would, uh, they would show us often pieces about patients who had diabetes and they were like just skin and and bone, very malnourished looking. All right. So I, I, most of us are familiar with Frederick Banting and his assistant, Charles Best. 
1921 with the discovery of insulin? Did I mean, did anything happen prior to that, or was that really like, bam, they hit, they hit the mark and started running? I'm just curious, was there anything going on prior to that that led them to this, or were they really just... Uh, well, we know they're amazing. So, were they? I'm just curious to know if there's any backstory. Well, in 1889, there were two German researchers, Oscar Minoski, Minkowski, and Joseph uh, von Murray. They found that when the pancreas gland was removed from dogs, that these animals developed symptoms of diabetes, and they died soon afterwards. So this is actually the idea, with this idea in mind, that was what led them to decide that the pancreas was actually the organ um, and the site where the pancreatic substances of insulin were actually produced. And so that led to more research. So later on, experimenters uh, narrowed this search in the area and found the islets of Langerhans, um, that is the actual area, a cluster of specialized cells in the pancreas. And that discovery uh, came along. So in 1910, Sir Edward Albert Sharpley uh, Schaefer suggested one, only one chemical was missing from the pancreas in people with diabetes. And so he decided to call this chemical insulin. And that's how we actually came up with um, insulin and the discovery of insulin. And it was the word insulin is Latin meaning island. So actually it was found in the islands, in the islets of Langerhans. And so that was the most appropriate name to give it. So, and so then in 1921, Frederick Bantine and Charles Best removed the insulin from a dog's pancreas and the dog died uh, 70 days later, and that's when they realized that they needed to refine and, and create a pure form of insulin in order to inject that into humans to save their lives, right? Is that – am I Absolutely, kind of doing yes. that? Uh, all right, so who was – so after they did that, I would think, like, who becomes a human guinea pig for this idea? Since we're now seeing it in dogs, right, that they uh, they were – Charles Banting and Bess were working with a dog. But who, who was the first human to get insulin injection? Okay, so in January 1922, Leonard Thompson was a 14-year-old boy who was dying from diabetes in a Toronto hospital. And so he became the very first patient to receive insulin injections. Within 24 hours, Leonard's dangerously high blood glucose had dropped. He was near normal, down to the normal levels. So this news uh, about insulin spread around the world, it was like wildfire. It was uh, the best thing that ever happened since sliced bread. So in 1922, 23, Van and MacLeod received the Nobel Peace Prize in medicine, which they shared uh, with Best and Collip and our diabetes researchers. We really thank them for that discovery. Okay, so, after, you know, I've seen, I've seen the photo 
of these children prior to receiving insulin. It looks like a death ward, and then you see them bouncing on the beds, and they're fully alive. I just want to know, knowing that it became this, it is a life-saving medication, how did this idea of going on insulin become a bad thing for people with type 2? Like, why do you think, how could you change something, spin doctor something to that effect, where it's being, it's saving lives to where millions of people today look at insulin, at the thought of going on insulin if they're living with type 2 diabetes as a bad thing? Well, um, originally, like back in uh, the early 20s, insulin was being extracted from pigs and cattle, and it was used for years that way to treat diabetes, but it did save millions. But a lot of people um, had allergic reactions from many, you know, from from the ingredients that um, the way that it was being extracted. And so we did not come to have genetically engineered insulin or synthetic human insulin until 1978. And so now the insulin that you see is actually like um, replicated um, according to the human DNA strands. So it's not produced from the animal. We don't ha- we don't see uh, animal insulin. We see synthetic insulin. And so, so it does not um, have I'm going to open this up to Toby. I want to open this up to Toby, mm-hmm. too, because uh, I think when you were diagnosed, people, uh, and maybe they still look at type 1 as the bad diabetes versus type 2, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe type 2 is a better diabetes. But it's all around this idea. Mm-hmm. It may, do you think it has to do with needles? What is it about? How, how did this get spun in a way that it's a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get all the time uh, I hear that, that, oh, you have the bad diabetes, meaning I, I have type 1. I do hear that a lot, uh, and then so I need to correct that. Um, but I think for type 2, there was, there's this, uh, because it's such a strong lifestyle connection uh, that it, people looked at themselves, at, you know, looked in the mirror and said, I did this to myself. There was a lot of that kind of conversation in the beginning with type 2 diabetes. So, you know, I did this. It's my fault. That's why it's bad. Um, and then with insulin, too, that, that, to, that to people with type 2 diabetes, often that feels like failure. Oh, you know, I'm getting closer to being like somebody with type 1 diabetes that I, that I defined as the bad diabetes. So I think that that's how it all got interconnected and um, misinterpreted. And Patricia, I know the three of us uh, agree that type 2 diabetes is a progressive disease and ultimately at some point you probably will need insulin therapy. I don't know, again, why that doesn't get more exposure versus you could get rid of it or reverse it. Like what are your feelings on it? I mean, here we are 100 years celebrating the discovery of insulin, and there seems to be more confusion around it than there was 100 years ago. Yes, you're right about that, and I couldn't agree with Toby more that um, a lot of people really uh, misinterpret their diagnosis, and they feel like once they take insulin, it's a bad thing, or it's that they have failed, they have 
uh, and I'm meaning people with type 2 who originally maybe were managing with planning and exercise, and then maybe they went to tablets, and eventually uh, now they're taking insulin, and they really look at that as a failure, something that they've done or something they could have done to um, to offset that. And so as diabetes educators, we try to educate our patients and let them know from the very beginning that insulin, I mean, that uh, diabetes is progressive and that eventually the pancreas is making less and less insulin and that at some point, if they live long enough, they probably will have um, a need to inject insulin. And it's not a bad thing, but it's the best treatment. Um, insulin would definitely lower blood sugar. And so that is the treatment of choice when it comes to hyperglycemia, um, if it's at that point. But it's hard to convince someone that that is not the safe thing to do when they have thought all their life that um, insulin indicated that they were getting worse. And in a lot of instances, they're looking at family members, they're looking at people they have known in the past who maybe did well, and all of a sudden now they're on insulin. I've even had patients tell me that they know if they start insulin, the next thing would be dialysis or an amputation or something uh, terrible. One of those complications will occur. And so um, sometimes what they have witnessed is a person who probably should have used insulin a lot sooner than they actually did. And so if we can get the mindset, I always call it re-engineer the mind to understand that at some point you may need insulin. And if you uh, start teaching that very early on before insulin is even talked about in the treat as a treatment, people are more receptive to accepting it because it's something that they've already known that, you know, somewhere along the line that – it may be a suggestion for them. All right. And then we know that um, over the last century, advances in treatments range from the new artificial pain, uh, pancreas system, drugs that help control blood sugar and protect the heart and the kidneys, and new medications that delay type 1 diabetes are being developed, as well as new ways to track blood sugars throughout the day. However, I think in the last century, that one of the major advancements since the discovery of insulin are oral medications. And so, Toby, um, I want to throw this question at you. It seems to me that we talk to a lot of people on oral medications about how to get off diabetes, and we don't spend enough time talking about uh, staying compliant and the need for consistency with your medication to the point where 75% of people who take medications are missing dosages or have stopped taking them with the largest percentage of these people, 45% under the age of 35. I just want to know, since you do really preach, you walk the talk and you preach about consistency going back to what you said with the, um, one of the successful ways to manage diabetes, what do you tell your patients to help them be more mindful of being compliant and staying consistent with med just medications in general, not talking about lifestyle. Let's just talk about <laughs> managing the medications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So I a lot of times will um, use most most of my patients being type two uh, are not on uh, a continuous glucose monitor. So it's checking the blood sugar uh, and notice that the language we use is really important. And the uh, Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, that's our mothership for diabetes educators, uh, they uh, put out a position paper on language matters. And um, I'm just pointing that out as you'll hear language that I use is more towards a positive instead of negative. So when I'm saying checking blood sugar instead of testing blood sugar, because testing always gave the mindset to people of, pass or fail, and this is not pass or fail. We are, we're trying to get insight into what our blood sugars are doing. So checking blood sugar, I've used that a lot, both for diet and for medication and just overall management. Let's do, let's do a little trial on ourselves. This is how I approach it. You know, let's, let's check a before and an after, and, and let's see what the patterns and trends are. I think that that's a really great way, you know, that there, they're being engaged in it, and they're going to let me know then. Let's take a look at what the numbers are. You know, what happened when we missed out on that medication? Did it affect our blood sugar? You know, let's work as a team to look at this. I love it. I think that's great advice. I want to spend more time next year, Patricia, talking more about just taking your medications. Have you seen that too, like a drop-off in people with their dosages, missing them, or just putting it down and, and not taking their medications uh, or adhering to their prescriptions, Patricia? Oh, yes, I, I see that uh, quite often, and especially if a person feels that, I mean, you know, sometimes you have someone who just feels that producing chemicals in the body is just not a good thing, and so some do it for that reason. They They feel like they've been prescribed a high dose or, it's too much or it's something they should not be doing. And if there are people with that old myth or a misunderstanding that this drug is addicting, although it's not a narcotic, but it's something that if you take it often enough, it's something that you will, your body will need and you, you just have to take it and you have to have it. But there are so many misconceptions surrounding medications, especially medications uh, used to treat chronic illnesses, chronic conditions. Um, a lot of people just are of that mindset that you should not be taking medicines like that, not every day. Or I'm taking two or three different pills, that's too much. And then there are those who don't take medicines because of the cost, affordability. That uh, interplays with the reason why a lot of people don't take it. And then sometimes it's just that misunderstanding. But with that continuous glucose monitor, um, you can sometimes sway the mind and uh, allow a person to really rethink the way that they are thinking when they see that when they miss doses, blood sugars are not being managed well. So that piece of, of the puzzle is really something that may um, – bridge the gap and help them to um, fill in that missing link and to better understand what the medication is actually doing for them. I appreciate that. It was great insight. I hope our listeners are enjoying this conversation as well. All right, when we come back, 
uh, opera is all about uh, Italian culture, like pasta, pizza, and cannoli. But how do those three items register on the glycemic index? <laughs> I'm going to be talking to Toby Moore about the glycemic index. Uh, we're going back in time and seeing how our attitudes and approaches to food living with diabetes have changed throughout the past century. Right now, we're going to take another opera break. This next aria was part of La Vili uh, that Puccini entered in a competition of one-act operas. The judges didn't think it was worthy of consideration, but a group of his friends subsidized the production, and its premiere took place with immense success in Milan. How amazing is that? That's what friends are for. How do you like that? All right, so let's enjoy some more Puccini, courtesy of Sony Music. I'm loving the opera. If you've never been to an opera, please go. It is so wonderful. It's like 200 people on on these immense stages. I, I'm so fortunate because I live in New York City that I could go to the Met Opera. It's like nothing you've ever seen. You definitely have to try to experience that at least once in your life. And if you go to the Met Opera, uh, they also show them online, which is a, a great way to enjoy the opera if you're having a problem uh, with COVID or just not wanting to go out and be a part of the larger community at this point. And I, I think safety is the first protocol. and got to uh, make sure you're taking care of yourself first and foremost. All right. Um, I know, Toby, 53 years of living with type 1 diabetes, also being a registered dietitian who worked with dialysis patients for a while, you are familiar with the glycemic index. We've heard this topic. Uh, is it archaic or is it current? How, tell us what it is <laughs> and should people with diabetes type 1, type 2, prediabetes, uh, gestational diabetes, be concerned or interested in the glycemic index? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my thoughts on it, because of the research and the science that have come out, um, has changed over the years um, when I speak as a professional. Um, because in the beginning, so what the glycemic index is, is that it rates food based on how quickly it affects the blood sugar rating, blood glucose levels. So uh, originally, uh, I was not paying attention to it, per se, because uh, it was done on single foods. And I was like, well, we eat mixed foods. So then... That's why I wasn't paying that much attention to it because I was like, well, this is only if you're like in a study with eating only one specific food and we don't do that. That wasn't reality. But there is more uh, 
research out there showing, uh, you'll see a lot of times that glycemic index, not just alone solely to be followed, but to have like a plant-based diet with low glycemic uh, foods. You'll see the low glycemic index foods added on to some of the healthy um, eating plants. But just to go back for a minute, okay, so as I understand it, it classifies carbohydrates and foods according to how quickly they raise your blood sugars. So mm-hmm. the glycemic index ranges from zero to 100, where 100 is pure mm-hmm. glucose or sugar. The lower the number is on the glycemic index, the, the slower blood sugar rises after eating that food. So like yeah. you just said, like a banana, I, we don't, I don't know the number for banana, but let's just say if – so. If I ate a banana, I don't, I don't want to give a false number, but if I had a, when, when you were using it or if you were told to use it when you were um, living, when you were early in your diagnosis, was my goal only mm-hmm. to eat low numbers or, I mean, like, was that the idea? Like if I sat down with you, would you say, Max, you have to stay, look for numbers under 25 or some foods under 25? I'm just wondering, like, how would I use it? Am I counting my... Am I counting my index all day long? Like, what? What? How do you mm-hmm. use it? Right. So you kind of uh, under you, you know which foods end up spiking your blood sugar from trial and error uh, is one okay. way. Instead of, I, I don't know the numbers offhand either. You know, like in, by memory, but I know which categories. And so, like the low glycemic index numbers tend to be with most fruits and vegetables, beans, um, whole grains, low-fat dairy, and nuts. And that also goes right in line with, like, a Mediterranean diet and a plant-based diet, which that's where you'll see a lot of uh, literature and research showing on those diets or eating plans. I'm sorry, I don't want to say diet. Eating plans. Uh, are more helpful for people with diabetes and managing blood sugar levels. So there's low glycemic index foods, moderate, and high. Uh, so it's it's all a matter, as a dietitian and as a person with diabetes, it's all a matter of balance. I would never say to somebody or to myself, you can never have such and such or whatever because it's like high glycemic index or whatever. It, the thing is that so white bread, for example, is a high, on the high list, but I would never say do not eat white bread. What you do, you're not going to eat white bread by itself anyway, so we want to combine it with some other foods. If you have some protein with it, if you have some fat with it, uh, that will help to uh, not spike the blood sugar rating as if you had that single food. So, and I've read about your approach. Your approach is much more portion size on everything. So you're, if mm-hmm. I'm sitting down with you, like you just said, Max, I'm not going to take anything off your plate, but you might want to, if you're going to have that white bread, the whole loaf might not be the option, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, Patricia, I'm going to for- throw, I'm going to throw this, I'm going to throw this to Patricia and then come back and get your feedback on it too. It seems to me, Patricia, looking at food and our approach to food with diabetes over the past century, the focus going forward is on eating behaviors, 
right? So like we were just going through the glycemic index and talking about carbohydrates, which is important, but it's not just what you're eating, it's what's eating you. And recently I saw the movie Spencer with my mother and it was about Princess Diana who was bulimic. And I think in the 80s, no one was bulimia, I'm sorry, bulimia wasn't really such a popular word as it is today. And I just feel like in the past couple of podcasts, we've talked about diabulimia, we've talked about binge eating, we've talked about stress eating, emotional eating. Do you see this trend carrying through to educators that you'll be talking more about my behavior, uh, how I eat, why I eat, rather than just what I eat? Um, yes, I, I couldn't agree more that, that those are topics that need to definitely need to be addressed because um, as you say, it's, it's what's eating you, what drives you to do the things you do or to eat the things that you eat. And comfort food sometimes, um, you know, people have their own comfort foods, the things that they like, the things that give them comfort and provide, um, take away some of the distress. And especially in today's society, as we are going through a lot of things that are stressors, we will find that those are the tendencies and trends that a lot of our patients are probably eating out of that distress. And so analyzing or delving a little deeper and assessing those behaviors and the causes, the underlying causes, even if it means that we refer our uh, clients to counselors, but I feel that extra um, extra emphasis should be put on those behaviors. And you were saying earlier, yeah. Toby, like language matters. So how do you mm-hmm. how do you approach this? Are you talking at all about my emotional uh, situation, or are we just looking at what's on my plate? Like, where do you see this conversation going? Because According to my own research, uh, most people who go on a diet or some uh, don't succeed, many of them are binge eaters, and those who go on diets with type 2 diabetes tend to do this kind of vicious cycle of lose, gain, lose, gain, Mm -hmm. and never become friends with food. They become frenemies with their food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard that term before. I like that. To know it. I don't like the word (laughs) frenemies. I... I use the term eating plan always as far as words, you know, words that matter, language matters instead of diet because uh, diet has that negative connotation with it. This is an eating plan that has more of a positive uh, spin to it. And I wanted to bring up too that, that this may, I think that this is helpful to know that the American Diabetes Association no longer publishes a position statement on diet recommendations. So it's not that we're real rigid with that um, anymore. And they just give you four recommendations, which I think are, are doable. You know, one is emphasize consumption of non-starchy vegetables. Minimize the consumption of added sugars and refined grains. Choose whole foods over highly processed foods and replace sugar-sweetened beverages with water as often as possible. That's the extent of the quote, guidelines coming from the American Diabetes Association because of somewhat the emotional aspect. We have to think there's lots of culture sensitivities with eating. I mean, everybody isn't eating, quote, the American diet or didn't 
wasn't raised eating the American diet. So we can't be so rigid in taking away um, food is emotional. And uh, this opens it up to what works best. You know, we're going to take a step back and what's doable and sustainable that you could be consistent with. I love it. I think that I, I love that. All right, so we're wrapping up this wonderful conversation on um, in November for National Diabetes Awareness Month. I want to ask both of my guests, Patricia Eddie Gentle and Toby, Toby Smithson, uh, what your final thoughts are on about where what's next in diabetes self care. You've heard me expressing my opinions tonight. So, Patricia, let's start first with you. Uh, what is what do you think the next trend is, and where are we going? How do, you see, how do you see people being advocating in better ways going forward? Well, with the onset of uh, the pandemic that we're in, we have seen a lot of virtual classes, virtual doctor's appointments. Um, I really don't think that these are the kinds of things that will go away, uh, even once we are once we feel safer about um, not having to distance ourselves or maybe not wearing masks or whatever, but I still think that this virtual platform will be uh, something that we will continue to see. Um, For a lot of people, it's convenient. For a lot of our clients um, who are immobile or who may not be able to make it into the office, or find it very difficult to make it into the office. Um, That is a a new wave, a new thing that we can um, start looking at. And it promotes family gatherings. Uh, When you have only one person who can enter the uh, exam room, now you can have an entire family who can listen in and who can get this education and understand and be more supportive of the person who actually has the diagnosis. And so um, in a lot of ways, our virtual uh, types of platforms are not as efficient. You don't get the um, the hands-on, the laying the eyes on certain things and certain aspects of the visit. But we do have, you know, home health for blood draws and that type of thing. So I think the virtual platform is here to stay. All right, and we'll give up Toby the last two minutes. I know you do a lot of videos on your YouTube channel and use social Mm -hmm. media a lot to stay connected with your patients as well as getting them to advocate for their self-care. What's the trend you're looking at Mm -hmm. or have your eye on? Yeah, so I'm going a little different direction here. Uh, I My focus is on the new technologies and the advancements in diabetes. Uh, one is, like I talked about, mimicking the pancreas, you know, with the closed-loop insulin pumps, basically that the insulin pumps talk with the continuous glucose monitors. So you're taken out of a lot of the decision-making, and it's acting as if it was, a, a fully functioning pancreas. I think that that's really exciting. Um, there's there's a lot of research uh, coming out uh, and started on the gut microbiome. Very interesting topic that uh, has a relation to diabetes. So I think it's worth continuing to look at that. 
And then stem cell research. And I wish I took little notes, but I just read an article about a successful stem cell research that the person that they did it on, um, did, I don't remember how long they, I think they, they did not need to take any insulin from the outside, you know, an injection or of any sort that it, it worked. It, so I think that there's lots of research uh, coming up, you know, that we should be looking at for um, a really different future than what we've seen over the past 100 years. Yeah, and hopefully we'll be encouraging more people to be live um, like you are, happy and healthy without any complications, free with diabetes for another 50 years. And I want to thank both mm-hmm. of you for joining me tonight. Don't miss our next podcast coming up in December and sign up for our baking party with the Diabetic Pastry Chef. So uh, every diva has an entourage. I'm so glad to be part of yours. Let's stay happy and healthy together this holiday season. Here's one more song by our musical inspiration, Puccini. It's from Turn Dot. I love this song. It's my favorite. Have a good night, everybody.